Hello and welcome to Rooted Together Podcast, the podcast which aims to root you in Christ through His Word together. I am your host, Charles Hegwood, and today we continue in part two of chapter nine in Luke. And this time we're going to continue the theme of the entire chapter in this two-part series. And the, the theme is this, what does it mean and what does it look like to be a Christ follower? What does it look like for someone to profess faith and live by it? Well, Luke tells the, the reader in chapter 9 what that looks like, and I broke it up into two because both parts are very important. So, as those who have been sent out must see that Jesus is truly God, and they must live accordingly. See, the the first part of this chapter deals a lot with who is Jesus. You have to know who he is. You have to understand that you've been called together to be sent out. You have to go under God's authority. You have to go with Jesus as your power and source of strength. You have to do it with the right confession of who Jesus truly is. And as we're going to revisit today, you have to be willing to give up everything to follow him, and that's going to be revisited at the end of this chapter. But today, as we continue through this chapter, we see again, is what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, to be sent out? It means knowing who he truly is and listening to him, listening to Jesus. What do I mean? On the transfiguration, as we often call it, verse 28. It says, now about eight days after these things, or these sayings, so after what we just talked about, about eight days later, he took Peter, James, and John, that's the three inner circle people, and they went up on a mountain to pray. This is, by the way, the third time in the chapter Jesus has prayed. It's important to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So hang on a second, let's talk about what's going on here. Jesus is praying. And as he's praying, his appearance is transformed. That's why we call this the transfiguration. And we all of a sudden are introduced to two people that weren't there before, and it's Elijah and it's Moses. Now, how did they know it was Elijah and Moses? I don't know. Perhaps Jesus told them after it was over that's who it was. But what's interesting is it is Elijah and it is Moses, and they are talking to each other with Jesus. And what are they talking about? And this is something before this read-through I had never really focused in on. They are talking about Jesus' trip to Jerusalem where he will be handed over, killed, and he will be risen again, or raised again. They're talking about the gospel. And I find it interesting, just on a, a side note, that these these great men of God from years and, and centuries past reappear, and they're talking and they're proclaiming, the gospel to each other. And they've they've been with God this whole time. So what does it look like? I mean, what does that mean? What are the implications? Now, this is where I would say you're on thin ice, making a lot of implications here. But just an interesting observation. Here are these two people who are long past dead, and yet they are proclaiming what is about to happen. They are paying attention to what Jesus is doing in and through the world. Is it possible that after we die and we're with 
God in heaven, this is before, you know, new earth and new Jerusalem and all that, before Jesus returns, uh, we're in heaven, will we know what is happening on earth? And again, it's speculation, but I would say perhaps yes, because I make that from this observation, they're talking about what is about to happen, they're talking about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that's the gospel. They're paying attention to what Jesus is doing through the world. Is it possible that after we die, we will still be able to see and engage with what Jesus is doing in and through the world? I think yes might be the answer to that. And again, I know I'm on shaky theological ground, so I'm not going to proclaim that as absolute true of the Bible, but it's an interesting observation that they're not just there, and they're not just talking to each other. They're proclaiming what is about to happen. They're, pro- they're, they're proclaiming the work that Jesus is about to do. And I don't think that's nothing. I think that's something. It's interesting for your observation anyway. Maybe you can read that and think about it and meditate on it for a while and just think about possible implications. But for this episode, we move on. Uh, now, in verse 32, Peter and those who were with him had been heavy with sleep, but they have now become fully awake, and they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him, and these men were parting from him. And as these men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and not knowing what he had said. He's missed the point of this. And as he was saying these things, because he had missed the point, a cloud, God's glory overshadows them. And from the cloud, the voice of God speaks, this is my son, my chosen one. Remember, Peter had just said earlier, you are God's Messiah, you are the anointed one. And here God through the cloud confirms, yes, this is my chosen one, listen to him. He's missing the point Peter, that is, of of seeing Moses and Elijah proclaiming the gospel. Remember, Jesus said, yes, I'm the Christ, and I'm about to die. And we're going to see later in this chapter, he says it again, and they don't quite understand it. What is God saying from the cloud? Listen to Jesus. Those who have been sent out by Jesus, those who follow after Jesus, must listen to Jesus, it's important. Don't get distracted by all the other things this world has or all the other things that are going on. Listen to the voice of Christ. Do what he is calling you to do. Go and proclaim the gospel through the noise, through the distractions. As we continue to jump, hop, and skip through this chapter, the second part of this chapter, we see that true disciple, a true disciple, doesn't seek greatness. Now, we see that in two little stories here. We see that is they come down from the mountain, and what's interesting is, uh, while, but while they were all marveling uh, at everything he was doing, well, actually, he comes down from the mountain, and the next day, the very next day after coming down from the mountain, uh, there's this great crowd, and again, Luke locks in on the crowds, and this great crowd meets Jesus, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, and basically he is a son who's demon-possessed, and the disciples who were given earlier in this chapter, verse 1 of chapter 9, the authority to cast out demons are unable to do so, and Jesus responds with a little bit of criticism toward his disciples. Uh, the man even says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, and he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to remain with you and to bear with you? 
And he bring he said, bring your son here, and he cast out the demon. And they're all marveling. So here's these guys who had been given the authority, who can't get it done. They're marveling, and then Jesus takes this moment as they're marveling to say, I'm about to go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me, but I will rise again. He again calls his shot, and again it's completely missed. They're actually even afraid to ask what that might mean. So they just sort of go, well, um, I don't understand, but I'm not going to ask him about it. And then we jump into this story about who's the greatest. These guys who just a minute ago could not cast out a demon, who clearly did not understand what Jesus was saying when he said, I'm going to die, and then rise again. They don't get it. Now they're arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. They're saying, who's going to be the greatest one? But Jesus, knowing the reasoning in their hearts, which means maybe he doesn't directly hear it, but he sees it or he perceives it because he has that ability, and we see that throughout Luke, displayed. He pulls a child beside him, and he says, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives he who sent me. For who is the greatest among you will be the, the one who is the least among you, rather, will be the greatest. So what he's saying is, in the kingdom of God, the disciple is not the one who seeks power, but is the one who humbly seeks humility who seeks to be nothing more than a servant of Christ, who would be as a little children, who would receive a little child. It's the idea of someone who's humble. This is someone who's not haughty and saying, oh, you know, to have children would be beneath me, to have the children come to me. And so, in fact, there's another story where this happens, where children are trying to get to Jesus, and the disciples are shooing them away because they're saying, Jesus is too... (laughs) too great for you to waste his time on you. And yet Jesus says here, and just as he said in that that part of that story, the one who receives this child receives me. You're not above receiving the lowly. You're to be the lowest. The one who is the greatest is the one who is humble. A true disciple is one who is humble. Remember, by the way, back in Luke chapter 7, verse 28, it was faith and humility of the sinners there, the tax collectors who received that news with great joy. It's not power that makes you great. It is humility. You must become less so that God and you may become more, and you cannot have that if you are trying to hold on to self-importance and self-righteousness. We must humble ourselves if we are to be truly Christ's followers. We also see that we got to work together. Uh, That's important, cooperation. Being part of a family is important in the family of God. It's not something little. Uh, After they have this argument, John uh, answered and said, Master, we saw somebody casting out demons. So this is, by the way, right after. He just says, uh, "The the one who receives this child receives me. The one who is the least will become the greatest. And then John goes, with as almost an answer to that statement, says, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. He's not with us. He's not in the in crowd. He's not tagging along with you. And yet Jesus says, Don't stop him. But the one who is against the one who is not against you is for you. I Meaning we gotta work together. They're not always gonna be wearing the same jersey as you. And this is in a world skewed with denominations. And I'm not saying they're all bad. Like right? denominations are okay if they're done rightly. Uh, the problem is sometimes 
we, we tend to wear jerseys, you know, we're in the Baptist camp or we're in the Presbyterian camp or we're in the Methodist camp. And, and we have to see that as long as we profess Christ rightly, as long as we believe in God rightly, even if we wear different jerseys, we're on the same team and are to work together. If, we, if they're not against us, they are for us. Partly because Jesus understands that if this man is casting out demons and he is not being given that authority through God, he will not be successful anyway. You can't cast out demons without God's authority over them. That is key. Remember in chapter 9, verse 1, he gives them the authority to cast out demons. Perhaps what you're seeing here is a little bit of jealousy because they could not cast out a demon just in a few verses ago, and yet there's a man who is casting out demons successfully and Perhaps they're a little jealous about that. And Jesus says, no, 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 we must work together. We are to be one in unity. And Paul locks in on that theme, the idea of being one in mind, one in unity in our love of Christ. So the disciple is one who works together with other disciples. So what's the last bit of this? And this is one of the ones you could spend an entire episode on just this last little bit. It's probably the more contentious few verses. So as we get ready to close down this chapter, let me read it for you. And I would label this that the true disciple is one who counts the cost of following Jesus. And we're going to jump back to what we ended last episode with as well, because I think these two sections are actually connected and everything in between is like the sandwich. As they were going along the road, someone said, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds have the air, and they have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To the other one, he said, follow me. But that man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at home. But Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, again, you could spend an entire episode just trying to break down those few verses, but for the purposes of this chapter and the greater theme here, what does it mean? What does it look like for someone to follow after Jesus? It looks like counting the cost, being ready to leave everything behind. Jesus is not being harsh to this guy. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, if you want to follow me, you must first deny yourself. Lay down everything that you think you are, all your identities. It's not in your job. It's not in your money. It's not in your social status. It's not in what you do. It's not in who you know. It is in your denial of those things, laying them down before my feet and saying, Jesus, you are my highest form of identification. You are all that I am seeking. We deny who we are to be, to follow Jesus, to take up our cross. That's costly. Jesus is not being harsh to this guy. What, what he's saying is to this guy who, who's come to him and who has said, Jesus, I want to follow you. He's saying this, count the cost. It will cost you everything. By the way, Matthew, who had great wealth, left everything to follow Jesus. Peter, James, and John left their professions 
to follow after Jesus, to have nothing. To follow Jesus might cost you everything. Think of the story here of the rich young ruler who Jesus says, you must give up all your wealth to follow me because it has your heart. Jesus is saying, count the cost. You have to leave everything. Be willing to deny yourself. Leave everything behind. And yet to another, Jesus calls out and says, you follow me, something he said to his 12 disciples before. And yet this man has an excuse. Well, I will, Jesus, but first. Now, Jesus isn't being mean here. He's not saying skip your dad's funeral. What Jesus is saying is you need to put one, put me first, two, don't be distracted, but to preach the gospel. See, this man, it wasn't that his dad was dead and he had to wait till after the funeral. It was that he's like, well, let me let my parents die first, and then I'll follow you. And what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 you must follow me and follow me now. Don't be distracted by the things of this world. A modern application might be, Jesus, I'll follow you, but first let me make enough money. Jesus, I'll follow you, but first let me pursue this path on my own, and then I'll follow the path you you have laid out for me. And Jesus says, no, don't get distracted. Preach and proclaim the gospel. Even perhaps you could say, this is somebody who would say, you know, hearing the call of Christ to follow them, who would look at Jesus and go, I will proclaim the gospel, but first, let me live my life. And then when I'm, when I'm done having my fun, I'll preach the gospel. And Jesus is saying, no, don't be distracted. Proclaim the gospel. A true disciple proclaims the gospel. And the last one is, again, another person approaches Jesus and said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me say goodbye to my family. And what Jesus is saying, the one who truly follows him is the one who has him as, his, as their highest allegiance, meaning... Jesus must be above all else in your life. You cannot have other allegiances, not even family, above Christ. Now, that is not Jesus being harsh, and that is not Jesus saying family does not matter. Of course it does. It's your highest ministry. If you are a father, your highest ministry is to your kids and to your wife. If you're married without kids, your highest ministry is to your wife first, and then whatever ministry you're doing secondly, you are to make disciples in your home first. That's not the issue here. The issue is he's saying, I would like, he talks about having your hand on the plow. It's the idea of, I want my life. I want what I want out of life, and I want to, to get what I want to get. I want to be comfortable, and then I'll follow you maybe if it fits my my schedule. And what Jesus is saying is, no, I must be your highest allegiance. You must be willing to leave mother and father to follow me. You must be willing to leave your job and your comforts behind to follow me. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. It is counting the cost. It is listening to the voice of Jesus. It is humbling yourself before Jesus, and it is working together with your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Thank you for joining me in Rooted Together, and I look forward to joining you in Luke chapter 10 next time. I'll see you there.